June 22, 1938, Yankee Stadium, New York City. 70,000 excited spectators packed the venue to see the most anticipated boxing match of the year, Joe Lewis versus Max Schmeling. 33-year-old Schmeling was a veteran German fighter known for his precision and strategy in the ring. 24-year-old Lewis was the brightest young American boxing star armed with a powerful knockout punch. On the surface, it may have seemed like any other boxing match, but inside Yankee Stadium, every single person, including the two boxers, knew the fight's significance went far beyond the heavyweight title. That summer, Nazi Germany had invaded neighboring Austria, and its leader, Adolf Hitler, openly declared that he wanted more. European leaders were scrambling to respond to Germany's aggression, while America's political tensions simmered. Another great war loomed on the horizon. On that day, the fight between Schmeling and Lewis personified that larger battle, America versus Germany. The two men entered the ring, the bell rang, and the crowd cheered as Lewis and Schmeling advanced towards each other, the hopes of their nations resting on their shoulders. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. I'm Carter Roy. And this is Obituaries, a Spotify original from Parcast. Over the next 10 episodes, we're looking at unlikely pairs, giants in their respective fields, who left a deep and lasting impression on the world and each other. Some of these pairs considered themselves allies, some partners and some bitter rivals. But in every case, their legacies are inextricably intertwined. We'll look at their lives side by side to see how their paths converged, how they impacted one another's fates, and ultimately, how they were remembered. In this episode, we'll cover the parallel and converging lives of boxers Joe Lewis and Max Schmeling. Their rivalry in the 1930s wasn't just about their sport, it represented the battle between the United States and Nazi Germany. We'll cover how their boxing careers began and culminated in two of the biggest and most politically charged fights of the 1930s. Then, we'll learn about how their legacies remained intertwined with one another and a history much larger than either individual man. Coming up, the beginnings of Joe Lewis and Max Schmeling's boxing careers and how the two ended up on a collision course. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The clash between Joe Lewis and Max Schmeling wasn't just a fight between heavyweight boxers. To the people in the stands and the millions more following on the radio, it was a clash between nations on the verge of war. Joe Lewis wasn't just an exciting young boxer. He was America personified, a young black man who rose from poverty to become the biggest athlete in the country. But nothing about Lewis's origins foreshadowed the greatness to come. 
Born Joe Louis Barrow in 1914, he took up boxing as a teen in Detroit, Michigan. While living in poverty on the eve of the Great Depression, he was the tallest and strongest kid in his class. Because of his size, he was a magnet for other teenagers looking for a fight. Lewis regularly got into street altercations with other kids, most of whom were involved in gangs. So naturally, a friend invited Lewis into a local boxing gym, and he immediately fell in love with the sport. To keep his mother from finding out about his new passion, he chose to go by his middle name, Lewis. Lewis's mother preferred another hobby for her son, violin lessons. She hoped they'd keep him out of trouble. Lewis said he practiced the instrument, but instead he hid his boxing gloves inside the violin case and went to the gym. Lewis wasn't the fastest or most elegant boxer in Detroit, but he had other advantages. His size, raw strength, and his ability to land a bone-crunching punch with either hand. Those traits made 18-year-old Lewis an immediate success when he started his amateur boxing career in 1932. He won 50 of his first 54 fights, almost all of them by knockout. In 1934, he won the National Amateur Athletic Competition. In fact, things were going so well that Lewis realized his boxing talent could potentially lift himself and his family out of poverty in the midst of the Great Depression. So in the summer of 1934, just after turning 20, Lewis decided to turn professional. Joe Lewis entered the professional boxing world with a bang. He won his first 12 fights, 10 of them by knockout. He was the best and most powerful puncher that boxing fans had ever seen. Word spread quickly about this new wonderkind, and by the middle of 1935, Lewis was a bona fide celebrity. His fights drew massive crowds around the country, and he even starred in Hollywood movies. But there was still one thing Lewis needed to do in order to truly ascend to the top of the boxing world. He had to become the heavyweight champion. And in order to do that, he would need to win a fight against a formidable opponent, Max Schmeling. While Joe Lewis personified the U.S., Schmeling embodied 1930s Germany. He was a tough and resilient boxer who was also friendly with Adolf Hitler. Born in 1905, Max Schmeling grew up in rural northeastern Germany a place that didn't know or care about boxing. As the son of a sailor, he had no exposure to boxing as a child. But when he was a teenager, Schmeling saw his first fight in a movie theater, a bout between British and French boxers. After that, he became obsessed with the physicality and strategy of boxing and desperately wanted to be part of it. Like Joe Lewis, Schmeling began boxing in his late teens. He moved to Western Germany to work his way up the amateur circuit. Then, a month before he turned 20 years old, Schmeling turned professional. Unlike Lewis, Schmeling had a precise style in the ring that was described as scientific. He relied less on power and more on strategy. He closely studied his opponents through film to learn their specific strengths and weaknesses. Then, when he did strike, Schmeling had a powerful right cross that could take down even the toughest fighter. 
That mighty jab helped Schmeling dominate the European boxing world. In 1927, the 22-year-old became the first German to win the European championship. But Schmeling, like his nation, yearned for more. He wanted to become the world champion. And in order to do that, he had to get to America. So he took a risky leap. In 1928, Schmeling split from his German representation and hired an American manager, Joe Jacobs. The decision angered the German boxing authorities, not just because Jacobs was American, but also because he was Jewish. That didn't sit well with Germany's increasingly overt anti-Semitism. But Schmeling didn't care. He had a mission, and he was going to do whatever it took to accomplish it. So, with Jacobs in tow, Schmeling made his American debut at one of the biggest stages in the world, Madison Square Garden in New York City. Over the next year, Schmeling dominated American boxing with his patience and powerful punching. He won several tough fights, including one against John Risco, one of the biggest boxing stars in the U.S. Upon the win, Schmeling became an international sensation with the nickname the Black Ulan of the Rhine. He wasn't just the most successful German boxer, he was the most successful German athlete, period. The attention only increased when he married Czech movie star Annie Ondra. On June 12, 1930, at Yankee Stadium, Schmeling faced off with Jack Sharkey for the World Heavyweight Championship. Schmeling's strategy was to fight defensively and hope Sharkey tired himself out or made a mistake. Which is exactly what happened. In the third round, Sharkey delivered a left hook directly to Schmeling's groin. Schmeling doubled over in pain while the referee ran over and disqualified Sharkey for hitting below the belt. As Schmeling writhed on the mat in pain, officials declared him the new world heavyweight champion. No one, including Schmeling, was pleased with the way the fight ended. Reporters dubbed him the low blow champion. While Schmeling told his manager Jacobs that he didn't want to accept the title, he wanted to earn it. A year later, Schmeling successfully defended his title by outlasting young Stribling, a boxer from Georgia. He was now a legitimate world champion. But that wouldn't last long. In 1932, Schmeling fought a 15-round rematch against Jack Sharkey, which ended with the judges giving Sharkey the victory and world title by split decision. Schmeling and his manager were outraged, but there was nothing they could do. Schmeling continued to fight well over the next few years. Even while he was distracted by what was happening back home in Germany, the rise of the Nazi party. At that point in time, Schmeling was ambivalent about the Nazis. He was hopeful that they might turn Germany's economy around, but unsure about their rhetoric. Nazi leaders, meanwhile, were concerned by Schmeling, specifically his willingness to befriend Jews and his loyalty to his Jewish manager, Joe Jacobs. This, while the party was adopting anti-Semitism as a key part of its ideology. 
Their concerns about Schmeling's Jewish associations mounted on June 8, 1933, when two months after Hitler declared a national boycott of Jewish businesses, Schmeling fought and lost to Max Baer, a boxer with Jewish heritage. Baer was best known for wearing a Star of David on his trunks. The German sports authorities fumed. The match shouldn't have happened in the first place. A year after the loss, Schmeling returned to Germany to work his way back up. He won three of his next fights, putting him back on top of the boxing world, but the Germans exerted even more pressure on him to stop fighting in America and act in accordance with Nazi ideology. So Schmeling set up a personal meeting with Hitler, where he bluntly told the Chancellor that he would fight whoever and wherever he wanted. He would not take orders from anyone, especially the Nazis. Hitler demanded that Schmeling fire his Jewish manager, at least. But Schmeling again refused. He was loyal to Jacobs, the man who'd brought him to America. The meeting ended without any agreement. Perhaps Hitler wasn't more insistent because, despite his private conflicts with German authorities, Max Schmeling was publicly playing the part of a national hero. He was the Third Reich's favorite boxer. The public loved him, and Josef Goebbels, Hitler's propaganda minister, made good use of Schmeling's prowess as a fighter, frequently featuring him in Nazi propaganda. After all, aside from his penchant for Jews, the strong, clever Schmeling perfectly embodied the image the Third Reich wanted to cultivate. And Schmeling played along. He performed a Heil Hitler salute after fights and spoke positively of the Nazi regime, out of a sense of obligation to his country and perhaps the knowledge that it would give him leverage when it came to choosing his matches. Jacobs likely knew that, which may be why he didn't mind Schmeling's pro-Nazi public image. He once even performed a post-fight salute alongside his client, with a cigar between his fingers and a smirk on his face. The Nazis hated it. But they didn't stop Schmeling when, in 1935, he returned to the United States to prove that he was still an international championship-caliber boxer. To get back on top, he needed to fight the highest profile opponent he could, which by 1935 was the youngest and biggest star of American boxing, Joe Lewis, nicknamed Brown Bomber. Lewis was just coming off of a victory over Max Baer, the same Jewish boxer who delivered Schmeling an embarrassing loss. Lewis was also black, which meant that in the Nazis' racist eyes, he, like the Jews, should be naturally inferior to a so-called Aryan like Schmeling. Schmeling shouldn't even deign to fight him. But Schmeling didn't care about the skin color of his opponent. He was determined to put himself back on top, and it didn't matter who he had to fight. On June 19, 1936, 22-year-old Joe Lewis and 31-year-old Max Schmeling met in the ring at Yankee Stadium in New York. To them, it was a fight to become world heavyweight champion. But to the 45,000 people packing the stands and the millions all over the world listening to the radio broadcast, this wasn't just a fight between a young phenom and an established star. It was about between the United States and Nazi Germany between white and black, between the fascism spreading through Europe and American democracy. 
The bell rang, the crowd cheered, and the two boxers stepped towards each other with fists raised. Coming up, Lewis and Schmeling fight for themselves and for their countries. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On June 19, 1936, two of the most famous boxers in the world met for the most anticipated fight of the decade. 22-year-old American phenom Joe Lewis faced off with 31-year-old German veteran Max Schmeling. Meanwhile, the tensions between their home countries were on the rise. Back in Germany, Nazism was growing more threatening against the United States. The winner of this fight would qualify to take on the current heavyweight champion and provide a boon for their country's pride in the midst of heavy political tension. The loser would fall out of title contention and risk embarrassing their nation on the global stage. Despite his pedigree, Schmeling was widely seen as the underdog. After losing to Max Baer and returning to Europe, American reporters wishfully believed he was washed up. Even in Germany, Lewis was viewed as the favorite. Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels had to order his newspapers not to cover the fight. He was worried Schmeling's loss would cause national embarrassment. But once the fight began, it was clear that Max Schmeling still had something left in the tank, and Joe Lewis had a real battle on his hands. The two boxers danced around each other, exchanging quick blows through the first round. Early in the second round, Schmeling surprised Lewis with a powerful right hook, briefly knocking the younger boxer out of his rhythm. Still, Lewis bounced back and remained ahead in points after the first three rounds. In the fourth round, Schmeling landed a crushing blow on the side of Lewis's head. Lewis staggered back, but remained on his feet. Schmeling attacked with a flurry of punches, knocking Lewis to the mat for the first time in his professional career. Lewis pushed himself up from the mat and continued fighting, but the damage was done. Schmeling had the lead and the momentum, and he didn't give it up. Finally, in the 10th round, Schmeling leveled Lewis with one final punch. Lewis sank down to the mat. The referee completed the count and declared the fight over. Schmeling raised his arms in victory as his manager and seconds swarmed the ring to congratulate him. Then he went across the ring to help Lewis back to his corner. It was a crushing defeat for Lewis and for his American supporters. The press criticized him mercilessly for his supposed lack of focus leading up to the bout. Sports writers accused him of being distracted by golf, starring in movies, and romancing women. Some even theorized that Lewis's bad performance was because he was on some kind of drug. Lewis's defeat also illustrated the uphill battle that he faced in the world of boxing, a sport still mostly viewed as a white man's game. 
Black boxing fans were devastated by Lewis's loss. Many white fans, on the other hand, celebrated Schmeling's victory, rooting for skin color over country. They believed that Lewis's defeat proved that black boxers could never compete with white ones. And with World War II still a distant possibility, that felt more important than defeating the Germans. After the loss, Lewis kept a low profile as he recovered in Detroit. He wanted to get back in the ring as soon as possible. He needed to prove the racists and doubters wrong. Meanwhile, in Nazi Germany, Goebbels' propaganda machine went into overdrive, capitalizing on Schmeling's surprise victory. The Germans celebrated the win as proof of the Aryan race's supposed superiority. Schmeling was uncomfortable being used as an image to prop up their ideology, but just like before the match, he kept his head down and avoided creating any public conflict with the Nazi regime. After all, life was looking good for him now, and he was enjoying it. Schmeling returned to Germany in luxury aboard the Hindenburg airship. Upon his arrival, he was feted as a hero by the Nazi government and the public. He wanted to ride the wave right into a fight with the current heavyweight champion, American Jimmy Braddock, to reclaim his title. But tensions were rising between Germany and the United States. At the 1936 Olympics in Munich, German-Jewish athletes were forbidden from participating. Allegations of the Nazis' racism and anti-Semitism was becoming an international controversy. Braddock and the American sports world didn't want to risk another loss to their German adversaries, so Braddock got out of his commitment with Schmeling by claiming he was injured. Joe Lewis stepped in, offering to fight Schmeling once again, but Schmeling refused, demanding he get the championship fight he earned. In early 1937, Braddock finally set a fight to defend his heavyweight championship, but it wasn't against Schmeling. Braddock still refused to fight the German because of the Nazi tensions. Instead, Braddock wanted to fight Schmeling's rival, Joe Lewis. On June 22, 1937, 23-year-old Lewis took on 32-year-old Jimmy Braddock for the World Heavyweight Championship at Comiskey Park in Chicago. After six brutal rounds, Lewis knocked Braddock out with a right punch that left the older boxer scarred for life. When Braddock hit the canvas, the referee declared the fight over. Lewis became the world heavyweight champion. On the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, Schmeling stewed over Lewis's victory. He was still furious that Braddock had avoided fighting him and felt there was an American conspiracy to deny him, or rather Germany, the chance at a championship. Joe Lewis wasn't satisfied either. Just like Schmeling after his low-blow championship, Lewis didn't feel like his title was legitimate. He wanted to earn it. Schmeling and Lewis knew what they needed to do. They needed to fight again. It wasn't easy to set up a rematch. Not only was there squabbling over money and logistics of the fight, but by the summer of 1938, the political tension between the fighters' countries were boiling hotter than ever. And Max Schmeling, one of Germany's most prominent international celebrities, was right in the middle of it. But Lewis and Schmeling were in it for the game, and their respective managers finally agreed on terms for the rematch. 
The two heavyweights were set to fight in June of 1938 in the same spot they'd faced off the first time, Yankee Stadium in New York City. As they prepared to face off again, the world was rapidly changing around them. On March 12, 1938, three months before the scheduled fight, German troops had crossed the border into Austria. Hitler's statements and speeches in the spring of 1938 left no question what he planned to do, expand the borders of Germany for his new Reich. Germany was no longer a troubled country with a controversial new leader. It was now a very distinct threat to peace in Europe. And to American spectators, Schmeling was the personification of German aggression. He was never an official member of the Nazi party, but rumors were spreading about his friendship with Hitler. He even attended the Führer's birthday party in 1938. Meanwhile, by 1938, Lewis was one of the most famous men in the United States. At only 23 years old, he had broken through mainstream American sports like no other black athlete ever had before. As his rematch with Schmeling approached, Lewis knew that this was no ordinary bout. It was a proxy war. In the ring, he'd represent the United States. Even the commander-in-chief knew the stakes. Before the fight, President Franklin D. Roosevelt invited Lewis to the White House. Supposedly, the president had felt Lewis's bicep and told him, we need muscles like yours to defeat Germany. Meanwhile, even white Southern fans, who hadn't previously rooted for Lewis, suddenly cheered him on. So Lewis leaned into the stakes. Before the bout, he published a ghost-written article describing his duel with Schmeling as a clash against a foreign invader. Max Schmeling, meanwhile, reacted in the exact opposite way. He refused to look at the fight as anything but a championship title. He avoided publicly commenting on politics. He didn't want to be seen as Hitler's man. He wanted to be seen as a boxer. But at this point, that was a futile wish. His reputation was already too entwined with Germany and its Nazi leadership to avoid politics. When he arrived back in New York in 1938, he was greeted like an enemy. Boxing fans mocked Schmeling on the street. Reporters criticized him. Some anti-Nazi groups called for boycotts against him. Still, Schmeling tried to ignore the noise and focus on what mattered most, the fight itself. On June 22, 1938, Joe Lewis and Max Schmeling stepped into the ring again at Yankee Stadium. They were fighting in the same spot as before, but everything else was different. Yankee Stadium was packed with a sellout crowd of 70,000. It was almost double the amount that saw their first fight. And this time, nearly everyone in the crowd was rooting for Joe Lewis. Meanwhile, Lewis wanted revenge. Schmeling wanted respect. They each had something to prove and a heavyweight championship to win. Reporters were already calling it the fight of the century. The cheering in Yankee Stadium reached a fever pitch as the bell rang and the fight began. Coming up, Joe Lewis and Max Schmeling fight again, this time as World War II looms. Now back to the story. 
June 22, 1938, Yankee Stadium, New York City, 70,000 fans cheered as two superstar boxers faced off. In one corner was 24-year-old American superstar Joe Lewis. In the other was 33-year-old former champion Max Schmeling from Germany. The heavyweight championship was on the line, as was the pride of their respective countries. Lewis was determined to make sure his fight against Schmeling wasn't a repeat of their first bout. The German boxer had outlasted him for 10 rounds before tiring him out and knocking him down. Lewis planned to go on the attack and take down Schmeling as quickly as possible. During the first second of the fight, Joe Lewis went after Schmeling with an aggressive flurry of punches. Schmeling's strategy of fighting defensively fell apart under the stress of Lewis's body blows. After a minute, Schmeling backed into the ropes, hanging on for dear life, but Lewis kept delivering devastating punch after devastating punch. The fight didn't go past the first round. Within two minutes, Lewis had knocked Schmeling down three times, and the referees rushed in to end the fight. Lewis hadn't just beaten Schmeling, he destroyed him and won the heavyweight championship with an exclamation point. The crowd roared in support of their national hero. Max Schmeling pulled himself off the canvas and limped over to Lewis to congratulate him, right before he was rushed to the hospital. Americans widely celebrated Lewis's victory as a moment of national pride. After the fight, Lewis was on top of the world and enjoyed every second of it. He celebrated in his usual glamorous way. During the day, he golfed with celebrities. At night, he spent thousands of dollars at upscale nightclubs. And in his spare time, he went shopping. After all, he had money to spare. Not just prize money, he was making even more money off product endorsements. He even spent $30,000 to create his own touring baseball team, with himself as the starting first baseman. While Lewis enjoyed the high life, his defeated rival, Max Schmeling, returned to Berlin and spent the next few months recuperating from two broken vertebrae in his back. As he healed, the German press distanced themselves from him. They even suggested his defeat was due to sabotage by an American-Jewish conspiracy. He slowly recovered in the fall of 1938 and knew he was at a crossroads. Smelling was unsure if he would physically be able to box again, and even if he was, he didn't know if he could return to America. On the night of November 9, 1938, anti-Semitic tensions in Berlin erupted in violence. Joseph Goebbels and the Nazis ordered so-called spontaneous demonstrations, which targeted synagogues and Jewish businesses with violence and arson. The attacks would become known as Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass. Max Schmeling was watching from his hotel room in Berlin as rioters looted and burned their way through the streets when his phone rang. It was David Lewin, a Jewish friend of his who owned a suit store in Berlin. Lewin asked Schmeling for a favor to shelter his two teenage sons. Schmeling agreed without hesitation. The boys arrived at Schmeling's upscale hotel room soon after, where Schmeling told them their father was busy on business. Then Schmeling called the front desk, claimed he was sick, 
told the staff not to enter his room. Two days later, when the violence had subsided, Schmeling snuck the boys out of his hotel room and back to their parents. Not long after, the Lewins fled Germany, and soon after that, Germany invaded Poland. It was September 1st, 1939, and the Second World War had begun. Schmeling expected to be exempt from the war, as most prominent German celebrities were. But he wasn't the national hero he once was, and the German government was finally ready to punish him for his disloyalty. So, with Hitler's approval, the German military drafted Schmeling and sent him into the thick of the fighting. In April 1940, he was assigned to a paratrooping unit. Shortly after, Schmeling learned that his manager, Joe Jacobs, had suddenly died. Schmeling was at his lowest point. His boxing career was flailing, he'd lost one of his closest allies, and he was being sent to fight in a war he didn't believe in. Unfortunately, things were about to get even worse. In May 1941, during a battle in Crete, Schmeling attempted a jump behind enemy lines. He landed hard in a vineyard, crushing his right knee and re-injuring his back. The injury extinguished any hope he had of returning to boxing. While lying in a military hospital bed, Schmeling also managed to anger Goebbels and Hitler again. He gave a quote to an American journalist saying he wished for a quick end to the war because he wanted to see his American friends again. Speaking of, over in the United States, Schmeling's rival was also serving in uniform, but having an entirely different experience. Joe Lewis enlisted in the Army in January 1942, a month after the attack on Pearl Harbor, and he was given the preferential treatment that Schmeling was denied. He spent the war in the U.S. and England, participating in exhibition fights for the troops. His prowess was used as a recruitment tool for the Army. But the good times wouldn't last. After the war ended in 1945, both Schmeling and Lewis faced severe financial challenges in their respective countries. Lewis's spendthrift years had caught up to him. The IRS presented him with a bill of over $100,000. At first, he didn't consider this a serious problem. Now that peace had returned, he could resume his competitive boxing career and easily pay off the bill. But in 1945, when he returned to the ring to defend his heavyweight title, Lewis lost. He discovered, to his horror, that at 31 years old, age was beginning to catch up to him. Meanwhile, 40-year-old Schmeling was in even worse shape. He'd lost most of his possessions in the war and struggled to make money. Out of desperation, Schmeling attempted a comeback in the ring. While his athleticism was sapped by age and injury, Schmeling still had some power left. He managed to fight five times in the next year. But by October 1948, he'd run out of steam and retired after one final loss. He couldn't return to America, but he did the next best thing. He got a job at an American company, Coca-Cola. Despite being a decade younger than Schmeling, Lewis was also nearing the end of his career. His skills were rapidly deteriorating. In 1948, he announced his retirement from boxing. 
but he wasn't able to rest on his laurels for too long because the IRS came knocking again. In 1950, Lewis received a bill for half a million dollars in unpaid back taxes, stretching back five years. He had no choice. In order to pay the debt, he had to return to the ring, just like Schmeling had, even if he had nothing left. Lewis immediately took on the highest profile fighter he could, Ezard Charles, the current heavyweight champion. Charles defeated Lewis handily. But the payday from the fight wasn't enough to pay off Lewis's tax burden, so he kept fighting. He managed solid victories over a handful of lesser boxers before his comeback hit a brick wall in the form of 28-year-old Rocky Marciano, a younger boxer who'd grown up idolizing Lewis. Marciano knocked Lewis out in the eighth round. After the fight, Lewis retired for good. In 1954, 49-year-old Max Schmeling finally returned to the United States. He'd worked his way up at Coca-Cola and successfully opened Germany's first franchise. But even with all his business triumph, Schmeling had some unfinished business to tie up in America. His first stop was New York, where he visited the grave of his old American manager, Joe Jacobs, to pay respects. He also attempted to repair his image in the U.S., telling everyone he could that he was never a Nazi. After New York, Schmeling traveled to Milwaukee, where he'd been hired to referee a fight, a PR stunt to get German immigrants in the area to buy tickets. While in Milwaukee, Schmeling found out his old rival, Joe Lewis, was living in Chicago. So Schmeling drove down to meet him. When Schmeling arrived at Lewis's house, the former rivals greeted each other with a hug. Schmeling took the opportunity to tell Lewis that the Nazi propaganda spread about him in the 1930s wasn't true. Lewis said he never believed it anyway. Despite the years of a contentious, politically charged rivalry between them, the two fighters had more in common than not. As former athletes adjusting to a post-war and post-boxing life, Lewis and Schmeling understood each other. The two became good friends. Over the next three decades, Lewis and Schmeling remained close. As Lewis tried out different jobs and continued to face financial struggles, he often relied on financial help from friends like Schmeling. Schmeling visited Lewis whenever he traveled to the U.S., and Lewis went to Germany to see Schmeling at least once. They also appeared together on the TV show This Is Your Life in 1961 as part of a retrospective of Lewis's career. Then, on April 12, 1981, 66-year-old Joe Lewis died from a heart attack. 3,000 people attended Lewis's funeral in Las Vegas, which featured a eulogy by Frank Sinatra and a performance by Sammy Davis Jr. Max Schmeling helped pay for the ceremony and served as one of the pallbearers. Lewis's friend and former rival lived a peaceful life for nearly another quarter century until, in 2005, Max Schmeling passed away at the age of 99. Upon their respective deaths, Joe Lewis and Max Schmeling were both celebrated as fighters and as symbols of a struggle that expanded far beyond the ring, too. Both men understood what it was like to carry the hopes of a country on their shoulders as they played their sport, whether they wanted to or not. 
That shared experience forged a unique mutual understanding, one that far outlasted the dark conditions that created it. Thanks for listening. You can find all episodes of Obituaries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with a new episode on the linked legacies of two groundbreaking iconoclasts. Obituaries is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Obituaries was written by Ryan Lee, with writing assistance by Nora Battelle, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Brian Petrus and Haley Milliken. Obituaries stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy.